The title of my sermon this morning is It's Clean Up Time. I want to take us into the Gospel of Matthew, but, but before we get into the Gospel of Matthew, we are going to make a pit stop in the Gospel of Luke. So would you open your Bibles and find your way to Luke chapter 1. Luke is a first century document. The Gospel according to Luke is a first century document that is written as a part of the eyewitness community of Jesus. If you want to get to know someone and you don't have direct access to them, the best way to figure out who they are and what they're up to and what they're like is to ask someone who knows them. And thankfully, we have this account uh, written from the eyewitness community of those who knew the historical Jesus to tell us what he was like and who he is and oh, so much more. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke and, and then we're going to jump over to the Gospel of Matthew. The title of my sermon this morning is It's Cleanup Time. Uh, when I was a, a, a young pastor just getting uh, started in ministry, I, was, uh, I wasn't making too much money, and so I had to work side jobs and what have you. And one of the jobs that I worked that looking back on was actually a really formative job that, that helped me for training and, and, and being a pastor and actually just, just in manhood in general. I, I worked in the preschool and working around little kids. I didn't grow up with younger siblings either, so... You know, I, I, I didn't totally understand, you know, kids quite that much. And so I, I had a blast in the preschool. If you talk to the staff members who knew when I worked in the preschool, it was a blast. But we had a song that we used to sing for the kids when it was cleanup time. We'd say, clean up, clean up, everybody everywhere. Clean up, clean up, everybody do your share. And you just do it over and over and try to get the kids into a little trance where they start cleaning and you know get everything you know let's get it all let's get it all wrapped up you know little banshees uh if you don't believe that we're born sinners you need to work in a preschool you'll see it hands-on so i was i was thinking about the passage that we're in this morning we're going to be looking at the historical john the baptist who's a part of the eyewitness community of jesus we're going to see what luke records about him and also what the gospel of matthew records about him and, uh, you know, he's known as the baptizer. He's putting people in water. He's getting them cleaned up. And he's out at the Jordan, down by the river, uh, talking about clean up, clean up, everybody everywhere. It's time to get in these waters. And intentionally, I'm talking about this because next Sunday is Baptism Sunday. So I, I thought it would be fitting for us to study the accounts of John the Baptist, the baptizer, and what was going on and unpack those so that as we celebrate baptism as a community, we're all on the same page with regard to the history and the tradition of what baptism means. It's, it's a, a symbol of cleanup time. Now this symbol of cleanup time, of course, fits into a, a, a broader context. Uh, namely, the first point on your outline there, the message of the Bible. So if we are to understand what's going on in, in Luke 1, and we're going to jump over to Matthew 3, you've got to understand what's going on in the Bible itself, because you've just jumped right, you know, into the Berit Hadashah, the New Testament. And, and really, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Matthew, the four Gospels that we have, in many ways are really the capstone on the Hebrew Bible. They're, they, this is really what is, the Hebrew Bible is pointing forward to uh, in terms of its shadows and its types and its prophecies and everything. It all comes to fruition in these Gospel accounts. And the book of Acts actually begins for us, really, the, 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 the New Testament, uh, the ministry of the church, this mystery, this new thing that unravels in the storyline of God. And so John the baptizer and Jesus are, are very much Old Testament prophets. Indeed, they are the last of the Old Testament prophets. And with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts and the birth of the church, you have a new school of, of prophets that have come that are also pointing back to the Hebrew Scriptures. And so we have to have that storyline in mind. The Hebrew scriptures begin with God the creator. You open the book of Genesis, and there you have, in the beginning, God created. Now, this isn't just an ancient, uh, you know, book of folklore or people trying to figure out, you know, the meaning in life or whatever. In, in terms of post-industrialization in our scientific age, I mean, we know as a matter of scientific fact that everything that has a beginning has a cause. It's basic law of cause and effect. Effects have causes. So if everything that has a beginning has a cause, and if the universe had a beginning, which we call the cosmological singularity, or more popularly the Big Bang, the universe comes into existence. If everything that has a beginning has a cause, and the universe had a beginning, therefore, scientifically and logically, the universe had a cause. 
Whatever the cause of the universe is can't be what the universe is because the universe wasn't there before, uh, before it comes into effect. So we know the universe is physical. We know the universe is mindless. Okay? Uh, rocks don't have ideas, right? Uh, trees aren't like, oh, I got a poem today. They're just trees, okay? Trees, rocks, matter, gravity. Oh, gravity's really cranky today. Gravity doesn't have a mind to it. It's, it's mindless motion. So the universe is matter, it's mindless. So it stands to reason that whatever created the mindless matter isn't mindless or matter. Follow me? So the creator is immaterial, and the creator is mind. The creator has personality. There is a, a being called God who causes the universe. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, so the universe had a cause. In the beginning, the book of Genesis says, God created. It fits with the science. This isn't ancient fairy tales. This stands up to modern scrutiny. God creates the world, and then he reveals to the world who he is. Science can't tell you anything about another person, right? You can look at a person and guess how much they weigh, guess how old they are, and what have you, but you don't really get to know the person unless they disclose themselves to you. Thankfully, God is not a deadbeat dad who created the world, impregnated the world, and then peaced out on us. God has revealed himself to the creation. There's one God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. He creates this world and he pours his love on the world. He creates humans and he makes them in his image so they're dignified and special. And these humans actually turn on him, rebel against him. And as a result of rebelling against the giver of life, there is the taking back of life. The universe itself is running out of life. We are running out of life. 10 out of 10 people die, and the reason why 10 out of 10 people die is because 10 out of 10 people sin. But God is a loving and gracious God, and so the story continues. It, on the heels of our rebellion, he actually promises to send one who's going to overturn and restore and bring us back to paradise lost. And then God continues to promise to people. He raises up his, uh, his promised people, brings them to the promised land. He sends prophets to them that keep calling them back to come to him, to know his love, to turn to him, to be saved by him. Those prophets he keeps sending, he keeps sending. John the baptizer and Jesus of Nazareth are the last of those prophets. So as we step into the storyline, we are going to meet Jesus, who is the promised one who is the one who would come, who would restore and renew all things. Matthew's gospel opens with the historical genealogy of Jesus. It, 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 it opens with the birth account of the historical Jesus. And surrounding it, most notably, surrounding it most notably, you are going to see uh, Jerusalem. And you're going to see these Eastern scholars known as the Magi. And you're going to see them come to town and they're going to adore this Jesus. We have on your outlines here the message of the Bible. I've introduced you to the message of the Creator and the history of Jesus. We, we, we move with uh, the Gospel of Luke that you've turned to, and let me share some introductory things about the Gospel of Matthew. The earliest textual witnesses that attribute this Gospel to the historical Matthew are very early and very accurate. He also, like Luke, is a part of the eyewitness community. Matthew is no mere historian, though. He's not just writing history. He writes with a purpose. His history and Luke's history as well, we call them gospel. And the word gospel is a word that means good news. This is why you have to have the storyline of the Bible in mind, because the whole part about humans rebelling against God and death coming and paradise being lost, that's all really bad. And so with Jesus, we hear something that is really good. In fact, it is called good news. It is called euangelion in the Greek. Ooh is the word for good. Ooh, it just sounds good, right? When you have something good, you go, ooh. And angelos is a word for messenger. Eon is a diminutive suffix. So we use this to say, euangelion, the good news. With Jesus stepping into human history, he's not a mere man of history. He's God of eternity. I recall I said that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth is actually the eternal Son who has become a man. It's a good thing that he became a man. It's ooh that he became a man because he has stepped in to restore paradise lost. 
And so Matthew's gospel begins with the annunciation of a son. And with the annunciation of this son, you have the annunciation of the end of war. Humans rebelling against God. God is bringing an end to the, to the war. And as you step into this account, it's important. You've got the whole storyline of the Bible in mind, the creator, the rebellion, the sending of the prophets, the people of promise, and then here comes Jesus, and that's the good news. It's important to have in mind here, be on your outline, the climate of the politics and cultural tensions of Jesus' day. The people, the people are oppressed. The people are surrounded by enemies. It's still that way in the land of promise. You're surrounded by people who don't want you there. Now, in the case of the first century, uh, the Roman government is over the people of Israel. They control them. It's, it's, it's occupied, and Rome is the one who's controlling things. And the Roman government hated Jewish people. And so what they did was they would put puppet kings over the Jewish people. So like King Herod, when Jesus is born, he's a puppet king. He's actually an Edomite, which are enemies of the Jewish people, but they masquerade him as the Jewish king. Matthew's Gospel opens with the alleged Jewish king, the Edomite Herod, who is actually slaughtering innocent children in villages because he has heard that the prophesied true king has come. In the midst of the chaos of having the Roman government on your back, in the midst of the fractions of people in society that are trying to make sense out of things, in the, in the midst of all of that, Jesus comes, the good news comes. Uh, speaking of the factions, there are three key groups. I'll put them in front of you here to, to, to know about. They are the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. The Essenes were a separatist group. Um, you might call them Amish or something. You know, they're like, ah, we don't do, you know, we don't do cell phones. We don't do electricity. We're, they, they're just kind of out in carriages doing their own thing and they're separate from society. The Essenes flourished in the second century BC. Uh, they, they gained fame in modern times as a result of the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery in the 1900s. Uh, you can go to the land of Israel today. You can see the Essene communities. You can pick up on your Kindle a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls and read all about them. They were dedicated to asceticism. They, they were, again, kind of like the Amish. They're just out by themselves or whatever. Their, their answer to the chaos of the day is, we're going to go live in the wilderness away from all this stuff. So they're escapists. And then the Pharisees, they're the middle-class businessmen, the hardworking, um, they're, they're educated. They didn't go to the Ivy League. They didn't go to Harvard, but they went to Cal State LA. You know what I'm saying? And they, they're, they're smart. You know, they, they, they got a degree. They work hard. They... You know, they, they're kind of white collar, but, you know, they could fix a car. You know, they could fix a sink or whatever. They know how to get down. The Pharisees were the conservatives of the day, the hardworking ones who were using politics and what have you, trying to reclaim the culture. The Sadducees were the aristocracy. They were the ones who went to the Ivy Leagues. Uh, they, they, they majored in gender studies or whatever, and uh, they got a lot of money, and they, they know a bunch of dumb stuff, and they're progressive. So they actually, uh, they would take the Hebrew Bible, and they go, eh, that part, nah, nah, that part's wrong, you know. So they, they, they didn't believe everything in their Hebrew scriptures. Uh, most, most notably, they rejected the doctrine of resurrection, which is central to the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and, and they rejected angels, they rejected all kinds of things. So they, they wanted to be scientific, they wanted to be cultural, they were the politically correct people. And they also were highly involved in politics. So uh, roughly speaking, you might say the Sadducees were like the leftists, okay? The, the progressive, you know, pride kind of people. And then the Pharisees are kind of like the conservatives. And then the Essenes are like the you know, we're Amish, we're just, I'm just getting rid of technology altogether because all you guys are crazy and I'm going to go live out in the woods, okay? So Jesus steps into this world and John the Baptist emerges and it's important to understand these groups because John is very likely, moving down to see the context of the historic John, John is very likely a part of the Essene group. He appears in the wilderness he appears uh, doing uh, baptisms, mikvaot, using water as a ceremony, which we know the Essene community was very much into. So John breaks out of his Amish community and he goes to the city and he starts to tackle the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
and the hegemony of the corrupt Roman system that was uh, oppressing the people. John, in many ways, is, uh, he's a preacher. He's also a reformer. He's kind of like a Martin Luther King Jr. of his day, seeking to awaken the moral conscience of the people. He was quite, quite the guy, quite the guy. Um, based on the details that we have of him, he was a little eccentric in the way that he dressed, too. I like to picture him as like, I don't know, Andre 3000 or Prince or something. You're like, what is that guy wearing? He dresses a little eccentric. But he's a reformer. And we need to take a pit stop on our way to Matthew over to the Gospel of Luke because Luke gives us a little more detail about John's family life. Uh, Luke tells us about his parents. John was the son of a temple leader named Zacharias. His mother was named Elizabeth. They were two really godly people. If you draw your eyes in, into the text there, you see in the Gospel of Luke, verse uh, 6, we read of them. You see that in verse 6, they're both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments. So he's got, he's got really good parents, you know. He's got parents who love him, and he's got parents who, who love God. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. Zechariah is an old man, based on the text, and Elizabeth herself was barren, based on verse 7. Uh, we read here in this account, as he's serving in the temple, the temple is the sacred place. Uh, looking at, you know, even today with the war popping off in Israel, the center of where a lot of the heat is is where the mosque is and where the Western Wall is, where the temple once stood. The temple is a place of tension for politics, but the temple was a place of holiness for the people of God. It was like a porthole of the heavens to the earth where God manifested himself. You might encounter an angel in there. You might encounter the divine presence in there. It's a it's a sacred and also a, a scary place. You're not supposed to just go in there. You, you know, it's not open for the public. It's a, it's a sacred, holy place. Well, Zechariah is there. They have a rotation of priests that serve, and he encounters the sacred. He encounters an angel. The angel tells him that his barren wife is pregnant, and that it's a boy, and that the boy was to be named John. Draw your eyes at verse 13. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him, you will give him the name John. So Luke tells us uh, in this account about you know, the, the origins and the beginnings of the historic John the Baptizer. He tells us, it, he tells us that uh, he is, in fact, a relative of Jesus because his parents are tied to Mary. Uh, so moving down on your outline there, the context of the historic John, you have a relative of Jesus. Look at verse 36 of Luke chapter 1. And behold, even your relative, Elizabeth, has also conceived a son. There existed a familial relationship between the families of John and Jesus. Elizabeth is described as a relative or a kinswoman of Mary, which may connote a cousin relationship or an aunt relationship, or, or even more broadly that they're just of the same tribe. And so we see in artwork, for example, here's a 1600s painting um, uh, from the Spanish Baroque painter Bartolome uh, of Jesus and John the Baptist, little cousins running around, little boys, you know, uh, looking like plump babies. I, I love the artwork of this era, too, because the kids always have little, little buff biceps, you know, <laughs> little buff fat. Uh, that's, that's how I long to look, just buff and fat. But uh, I got the fat part, but not the buff part. So... You see this artwork, you see it, and, and try to wrap yourself around this so that you can kind of understand the, these historical figures. This is real people in real life and real relationships. John's childhood is that of Jesus, is, is, is a bit vague. By the time we get to verse 80 of Luke chapter 1, we read, The child continued to grow and become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so, as I said, you know, in these broad social political movements between the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, John is uh, tied by scholars to the Essenes because he fits what we know about the Essene lifestyle. His parents were old, and so it makes sense that John would be in the wilderness where we know they lived. They, there are similarities between what we know about John and the Qumran community, most notably the practice of water ritual, as we will see. So John is a relative of Jesus. Number two, John is a real believer. Draw your eyes at verse 12 of Luke chapter 1. John was the real deal. He wasn't a, a phony, baloney, uh, televangelist preacher. Look at what Luke wrote. 
Zechariah was troubled, verse 12, when he saw the angel. And the angel said, don't be afraid. We saw that. You're going to bear a son, name him John. Okay, look at verse 14. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's in the mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, so you see this, like, you know, he's going to grow up and be an, an outstanding guy. Uh, and, and every parent, every godly parent wants that. That's, that's what you want of your kid. You want your kid to make an impact for godly things. And that's exactly what he did. He's a relative of Jesus. He's a real believer. And thirdly, he's a radical preacher. He's a radical preacher. The crowds came out to see this guy. And they didn't come out to see a guy because, uh, you know, like he was, uh, like it was a show or something like that or a circus. Because what we read, what we have recorded in terms of his message, it was highly offensive. And yet people came. There was something supernatural about that. When you have crowds gathering to hear an offensive message and you see their lives being changed by a, a hard word, you go, man, something's going on here. This is supernatural. Indeed, it's supernatural. He's filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Zacharias prophesied in verses 67 uh, through, through 79 about this deliverance of the coming messianic king that is to bring, uh, that is to come, and, and John is to bring out the red carpet for him. So John the Baptist was to serve as a preacher for uh, this messianic king that is to come, who is the historical Jesus. So we move from the message of the Bible now to the meaning of the baptizer, and would you turn from Luke over to Matthew chapter 3. Now you've got the context, right? You've got, the, you've got an overall framework of what's going on in the Bible. You have, you know, Jesus stepping in and the prophet John before him to prepare the way. Just as God revealed his purposes in advance to his prophets in ancient Israel, God sent John the baptizer to prepare Israel for a climactic revelation in history. John was in the wilderness as a prophet, and then he comes into the city to prepare the way for the king. He is, on your outlines there, the audacious forerunner preparing the way by calling people to repentance. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. He's, he's preaching, okay? The word here for preaching is keruso. The preacher was a keruch, as they would say, or keruchos, who drops bombs, the keruso. The ancient preacher is far different from the modern preacher. The ancient preacher was a herald, a crier, a proclaimer. They were public servants who would summons town gatherings. You know, hear ye, hear ye, everybody gather. They would convey messages of, of news from the government and from community leaders. That's what the Keruk, the Kerukos does. Keruso, this is how you find out the news in that culture. The town crier goes out, hear ye, hear ye, I have a message from the king. And then everyone gathers and you hear the message from the king through the Keruso. In this case, he's got a message from the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And here's the unpopular message. Verse 2, your best life now. No, just kidding. Uh, verse 2, repent. That, <laughs> that's not how you get a movement going. Repent. I got a, hey, I got a message for you. Repent. You go, ah, I don't, yeah, dude, get out of here, you judgmental, creepy, weird dressed guy. What are you talking about? Repent. The, the term repent is this word metanoeo, and it is a term that means um, to change, to turn. The prefix meta notes a change of a place or a condition. Noeo is your mind, it's a, a changing of the mind. Noeo is where we get the, the term agnoeo, where we get the word agnostic from. The agnostic is one who says, I don't know. The noeo is one who says, I know. Noeo is knowing. So metanoeo is changing your knowing. It's admitting that you don't know, you got it wrong. It's admitting that you got it wrong and not just stopping from doing wrong, but actually turning to the way that is right. Metanoeo is to turn. You're turning from sin. You're turning from 
your dumb way that was wrong and you're turning to the right way. Now, most people don't like being told that your way is dumb and wrong. That's usually a great way to end a conversation or to start a Twitter war, right? Or X war or whatever it is now, right? If you just fly in on someone, you're wrong, you're dumb. You know, it's like, you know, uh, what, what are you doing, John? You're, you're a Keruk, you're a Kerukos, and your Keruso is Metanoeo. Oh, bro, no one wants to hear that. John is telling them, you guys got to repent. You got to turn or burn. You got you to change. Your way of doing it is wrong. Pharisees, you got it wrong. Sadducees, you got it wrong. You guys got to turn. Essenes, all hiding out in the hills, you got it wrong. Herod, you got it wrong. Why do they need to turn? For, verse 2, metanoeo, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to turn because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the, the kingdom is coming. At hand, that means around the corner. This is no, uh, you know, whacked out Herald camping, you know, Jesus is coming back in 2011, or, I don't know, Seventh-day Adventist cults in the 1800s. He's coming back in 1844. Sell your farms. Donate it to the cause. You know, this isn't like an end times, doomsday guy who's predicting when he's going to come back. He's actually getting it right. For this, draw your eyes at the text, verse 3, is the one who is referred to by Isaiah the prophet, and when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. The prophet Isaiah foretold of the day when the Messiah would come. The other prophets as well. This is a part of the message of the Bible, the storyline of the Bible that we covered. The prophet Isaiah told of one who would be crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. John's ministry is a fulfillment of this figure who is preparing the way for the Lord to come. Malachi, Malachi, the prophet Malachi promised that Elijah's return in the end time would come. In Malachi 4, 5, and 6. A promise that subsequent Jewish tradition developed. Although Matthew did not regard John as Elijah literally, he believes that he is typologically the Elijah of the last days. John is saying, get ready, man, the king is coming. Now, that, that, we might hear, oh, the king is coming, like, woo! That, that's actually judgment language. It's, it's meant to make your knees knock. It's meant to make you weak in the knees like SWV. You're, you're like, oh, no, he's, com he's coming. I'm not ready for this. Verses 11 and 12, John speaks of Jesus' coming, the Messiah's coming, and he uses the language of fire, and he uses the language of a winnowing fork in his hand. I don't know about you, but if I heard a knock on the door and I looked through the window and I saw a dude with a winnowing fork and a fireball, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go get my dog and my gun and call 911 and it's going down. A winnowing fork and fire? The, the king is coming with a fork and fire? And John is like, hey, get ready, the fire is coming. John is like Henny Penny or Chicken Little. You remember Chicken Little is running around, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Metanoeo, turn, you've got to turn. The sky is falling, you better run. And so here we see John, he's preaching his little heart out. He's totally politically incorrect. Let's see what happens. We move from preaching repentance to practicing repentance. We read in verse 4 of John's, uh, John's fashion here. John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Uh, his, his food was locust and wild honey. As I said, I picture him like Andre 3000 or the Prince or something. He's got like camel's hair and a, a, you know, a leather belt. He's eating locusts and wild honey. He was a vegan before it was cool, you know. And, and so this, this fashion here, though, is actually making a statement. It's making a statement. The Hebrew prophets do this. We were talking about this on Wednesday night, actually, how the Hebrew prophets actually embody their message. Uh, you know, Ezekiel bread we talked about on Wednesday. I'm not going to open that can now. But, uh, you know, the prophets actually physically take on their message. And so John is, he's dressed as a, as a poor person. He's dressed in poverty. And yet he's announcing the king. You see the irony? John is cut off from the comforts of society. This isn't your usual town crier who's decked out in Versace and, you know, Smelling, all, uh, smelling like, you know, some, some nice cologne. And he's got his hair done and a horn and whatever else. This is a, this is a homeless looking dude 
who, who eats locusts and, you know, and honey, and he's crying out that the king is coming. Even that, you go like, how are people listening to this guy? He just doesn't fit the part. <laughs> he doesn't look like someone of importance, you see? And yet, that's the point. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And his point in doing that is to drive home, hey, look, it's not that guy doing it, it's me. Because people who look like that don't draw crowds. People who preach like that don't draw crowds. His fashion fits with poverty. His fashion actually also fits with the ways that Old Testament prophets dressed. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 1-8, you see Elijah dressed in a very similar fashion. They were embodying their message. They often wore sackcloth and ashes. If you saw a dude walking around in sackcloth, chonies, okay? Some ripped up chonies with some ashes all over himself. Ashy Larry talking about repent. You'd go, uh, get some lotion, you crazy man. I'm calling, uh, you're 5150. What are you talking about? You move down, the audacious forerunner prepares the way to be the audience responds to the gracious invitation. The wilderness is a barren wasteland and the people of the city would have had to travel a day to come out to see him, which intensifies it all the more. It's like, we got we to gotta go all the way out there to hear this guy, what's going on? We see under this point, the audience responds, point number one under that, the poor in spirit are eager. Look at verse five. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and the district around the Jordan. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. They're going to him. They're confessing their sin. They're being baptized in the River Jordan. They're being baptized in, in, in the River Jordan. Uh, in, in fact, I, I have a, a, a friend who's in Israel right now, and you know it's popping off and it's dangerous, and there's a war going on, and he messaged me, uh, you know, pray for me. I'm like, of course, I'm praying for you. And, uh, you know, he's a new believer. He, he just got baptized in the Jordan while a war is going on. I thought, what, what a beautiful picture to be baptized in the Jordan while a war is going on. There's, there's peace in these waters and what they symbolize. What do they symbolize? What is baptism? Well, the Jewish practice of baptism, baptism comes from a Greek word, baptizo. For the Jewish people uh, who were speaking in their original native language, they would have called it mikvah or mikvahot in the plural. The Jewish people living in the time of Christ used water as a sign in their religious ceremonies. Uh, the mikvah. On this next slide, you will see a picture of a, of a Jewish mikvah. And you see it has steps that go down into it, and they would be immersed in these waters as a symbol of ceremonial cleansing. The Old Testament prophets, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, David, they likewise use water as an external symbol for internal cleansing. As we move into the New Testament, we see this Jewish prophet, John, using water as a sign of repenting, cleansing, being changed. John is literally having pool parties, dunking people in the waters of the Jordan. And in the waters of the Jordan, you are publicly standing in front of the people and you're, you're acknowledging this in, in front of everyone. John's pool parties were so notorious that he earns the nickname John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, okay? That's what they call him because, you know, he's P. Diddy, he throws a party, everyone shows up. He says, hey, come to the wilderness and everyone's getting in the water. And that's John the Baptizer, man, right there. Look at him. He's all crazy and talking all mean to us. Man, he's a great guy, right? In mikvah, a person gets into the waters. The immersion is a sign of something deeper. It's a sign of something deeper. Now, this picture up here is significant because, as you can see, it is indoors, okay? But John is outdoors. And a part of this is an indictment on the institution of the day. Outside of the temple, they have tons of these immersion pools that people would ceremonially cleanse themselves in as they approach the temple. John doesn't use the temple mikvaot because he sees the temple as corrupt. Jesus himself goes into the, into the temple and does what? Cleanses it is the language. Washes it is the language. So John is making a statement about the hegemony and the power of the day and the corruption of, of the quote-unquote church of the day. It's, it's corrupt. So I'm going to go out into the wilderness and people are going to empty the city and come out. This is also Exodus exile language. They're leaving the city. They're coming out to the waters. This is exactly how the people of Israel entered the city to begin with in the Exodus. God brought them from the wilderness 
to the Jordan River, and in the Jordan River, they would walk into the land of promise where the kingdom would be established. It's a reversal of it. It's a very powerful, powerful image that's going on here. Another thing that is powerful about what John is doing is that the Jordan River was a place where Jewish people would baptize Gentiles who were converts to Jewish faith. So the Jewish faith had lots of water rituals woven into it, but there was one water ritual that they did in the Jordan River that would be done once in a person's life, specifically a person who was an outsider of the covenant, a Gentile. If you came and you said, I believe in the God of Israel, the God of Israel has changed my life, they would say, well, praise be to God. Let's take you down to the Jordan and symbolize what God has done in your life. And so John, being in the Jordan, John, a Jewish prophet, baptizing Jewish people in the Jordan, that itself was politically incorrect because you're treating the people of promise like they're not in the promise. Dr. Craig Keener, he's a noted biblical scholar, he writes that pagans wanting to convert to Judaism would repent and be baptized, but here John treats the Jewish people the same as the pagans. That's crazy. And you know, even to this day in Jewish culture, they still baptize Gentiles. This is where it comes from. In fact, this was a recent issue of the Jerusalem Post, uh, and I quote from it, a Gentile who converts to Judaism miraculously becomes a part of the people of Israel. This is accomplished by total immersion in living water of mikvah, the ritual bath. And so th that's why John eventually gets his head lobbed off uh, by Herod and his kinky, uh, it, it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird scene, I won't even get into it, but uh, suffice it to say, he gets his head cut off as enemy of the state because his message was politically incorrect. You think we have cancel culture today? You have no idea. They're chopping fools' heads off back then. We just lose access to our Facebook or whatever, right? So here we go. Number two, we see the poor in spirit are eager. Number two, we see the proud in spiritualism are exposed. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 7. When they saw the many Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, John says... Hey, you guys, get in. It's so glad you're here. No, that's why you got to look at the text. I might fool you here. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. <laughs> I love this. I mean, you know, if anything, it's like, hey, John, you know, just tone it down a little bit. I mean, they're coming to get in the waters. I mean, give them a break. He's like, you vipers, you brood of vipers who warned you, you know, of the wrath to come. So here we see those Pharisees and Sadducees, their first appearance. Remember, I... I told you about these guys earlier and these various groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, John, right, likely as, a, as an Essene, he calls them a, a viper. A viper is an insult. A brood of vipers, you're the offspring of vipers. That's, that carries the insult even further. In the ancient Mediterranean, many people thought of, of vipers as, you know, like they're, they're, they're one, they're unclean, and they're just dangerous, right? You're, you're, you're snake, you snake. Even in our culture, you call someone a snake, they're not like, oh, thanks, you know, unless you train at Cobra Kai or something. But um, unlike the Sadducees, the, the Pharisees, uh, they were a little more on the conservative tip. So, you, you know, they actually did believe what their Bible said, that a Messiah was going to come and raise the dead and restore the earth. So the fact they're coming to the waters, you might go, well, you know, maybe they're getting it, John. But John is a prophet. He has a word from God, and it's a hard word. Therefore, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Don't appeal to your ethnicity. Don't appeal to your cultural covenantal identity. Oh, we're children of Abraham, so we're good. We're good. Nope. Any more than you can appeal like, oh, I attend church, so I'm, I'm good with God. My parents were Christians, you know. They, they baptized me as a baby. I'm good. Uh, you go, well, yeah, the Bible doesn't show baptizing babies, but you can't ride on your parents' coattails anyway. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. You can't ride on your parents' faith or your friends' faith. You can't do that. Don't say that to yourselves. And then in verse 10, he drops the whammy even further. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's, you know, fire, fire talk, judgment talk. John is challenging an audience. He's saying, oh yeah, you guys want to get in this water? Do you really? Are you, are, you really, are you really repentant? Have you, 
Have you really turned? Do you really believe? This is why in our church, when we baptize people, we want to sit down and say, do you really believe? Have you really repented? Is, is this real to you? Or are you just doing it because, you know, you saw your friend do it or whatever? No, like this is a real thing. This is a real symbol. It's a sacred symbol. Do you, do you, really, believe, do you really believe this or not? This is sacred to us. There was an interview I saw recently, and I won't name names so as to politicize it, but there was a, there was a, a woman who was, uh, she, she had a necklace on with a cross on it, and she was talking about her promiscuous life, and there was an, another woman in the interview who identifies as a Christian who said, why do you have a cross on, you know, and she, well, I, I just think it looks pretty. <laughs> it's like, you, you know, like, like, like my Lord died on that thing, you know, like, do you know what that symbolizes, you know? You know what that symbolizes? You know what, what baptism symbolizes it? Don't, don't trivialize it. Oh, I just wanted to get, feel the water. It just looked like fun to do. No, 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 don't trivialize it. The ax is laid down. So we, we see the audacious forerunner, we see the audience respond, and then we see the anticipated deliverer is around the corner. Verse 11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism of the Spirit and fire. The belief of the Jewish prophets and the Hebrew Scriptures is that the Messiah was going to come, and before he brings in peace, he has to, he has to squash evil. So he's going to come with fire, to, to, to rain down on and to stop, to stop the war against God. And then he's going to usher in peace. The promised Messiah on your outline is coming in power, power of the Spirit. John speaks of the Spirit. As students of the New Testament, we think of the book of Acts and we think of the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and in the book of Acts, and we think of the church beginning there in Jerusalem and spreading like wild fire around the whole earth. The fire language uh, has a greater fulfillment than that, but this is eschatological. Those who refuse to turn will burn, John says. And again, you know, talking about hell and judgment and stuff, that's just not, that's not popular in our day, and it wasn't popular in John's day, let alone for him to be saying that to the conservatives, the Pharisees. I mean, you might get him shooting it at the Sadducees and Herod and those guys, but like, these are good guys. What are you saying? He's saying God sees through your spirituality and your externals, and he's going for the heart, and the heart of man has a problem in it. There's sin. You have to turn. And the message isn't meant to be mean or like I'm just trying to be politically incorrect to rile people up or whatever. I'm a provocateur or whatever. No, I'm not saying this because I want to be mean, John is saying. I'm saying this because it's actually the truth. The punishment of sin is coming upon the unrepentant. There's a promised Messiah, and there is a punishment that comes with Messiah. So John describes the baptism of fire with the image of harvesting grain. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Ancient farmers drew, uh, would take wheat and a winnowing fork, and they would thresh it into the air. Here's an image of that so you can see. The lighter chaff blows away in the wind, and the heavier grain would fall down to the ground and collect in the barn. The lighter chaff then is, is burned. So he's using this image, one that they would all be familiar with, and incidentally, being carried off in the wind, the word for wind there is the same word for spirit, pneuma. The spirit is involved in carrying them off into judgment. As the Messiah comes, there's judgment. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the one God who is, intends to come to the earth in judgment. As we, you know, look at the land today and we see war and missiles and innocent people dying and terrorists taking, uh, you know, prisoners and all kinds of stuff. I mean, you watch that kind of stuff when you see war and you say, what is going to ultimately end all of this? Force. Force is going to end it. Our, our, problem, our problem is a problem with God and, and we will not negotiate with him in our sin because we want to have our way. And the only way that that is changed is by force. Now, I'm thankful, I am thankful that the ministry of the Spirit in the last days isn't what I have coming to me. 
because God by force has already changed everyone in this room who is a believer. And so the judgment that is to come from the winnowing fork and the force of the Spirit and fire and judgment in the last days has been changed for you who are in Christ, which leads to the final point on the outline. We've looked at the message, the meaning, and now the mission. We, we are people who have been rescued from the wrath that is to come. That's a direct quote from the New Testament from the Apostle Paul. We've been rescued from the wrath that is to come. We would belong to the brood. We, 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 we would be, you know, vipers vandalizing God's kingdom, but he by force has changed us. And this, this here is this point, the difference that the gospel makes in repentance. From the time that Jesus began to preach in Matthew 4, verse 17, you see, Jesus, when he starts preaching, he starts with the, with the same word of John, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached a message of repentance. We continue to preach that message of repentance today, knowing that it continues to make us politically incorrect. In order for a person to be saved, they must admit that they are wrong and must admit that they have a judgment on them. And they must see the heinous nature of their sin and how it has estranged them from a loving God. If a person remains proud and self-righteous and unteachable and won't admit they got it wrong, they will die in their sins. But for those who repent, you will have life. And for those who repent, you must not say to yourself, oh, I'm such a good holy person because I made the decision to repent because repentance isn't a decision you make. It is a force that the Spirit brings to you. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, we read of how, and I quote, God has granted repentance that leads to life. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Paul tells Timothy to instruct those who oppose the faith so that, and I quote, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Faith is a gift of God that no man may boast, and true faith is marked by repentance. We come to God and we go, man, I've made a mess. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. This, this, that's salvation. <laughs> what must I do to be saved? Admit you're wrong. Confess your sin to God. And he will set you free. And who the Son sets free will be free indeed. This leads to the next point of conclusion and one after it. The dunamis, that is the power of the Spirit working in the gospel. We must, brothers and sisters, rely on this wonderful on this good news that has been given to us. It is a powerful message that changes lives. And even though it is offensive, even though it is politically incorrect, it is not our job to make it palatable, to smooth off the rough edges, or to change it so as to market it to people so that we can get them to come to church, grow our churches, and get them to believe this Jesus stuff. That is not our job. Our job is to proclaim the good news as it has been given to us. And, 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 and don't be like, you know, I was this kid, my poor dad, I was embarrassed by my dad, trying to be a cool teenager, you know. My dad, I'm like, hey, can you just drop us off around the corner from school? Because, you know, my friends make fun of your whack Nova and your fanny pack, dad. Just drop us off over here, you know. I was that kid who was like embarrassed by my dad. And I think there's many Christians, it's like you're embarrassed by the father. You're embarrassed by his message. You're embarrassed that he says, there is only one way to, to me. Because you know that saying that and believing that puts you at odds with the culture. But, but, but friend, would you rather be on God's side? Would you rather be in him or in the world? We, we read of John and we read of how John was filled with the spirit from his mother's womb. We read of, of, of Mary and, and the baby leaping in the womb, filled with the spirit. We see John filled with the Spirit, carrying the hard word, and, and God doing good things for it. Last but not least, we see the dynamic center stage of the gospel in the Christian life. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his harachis. He will, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John was a great preacher, but John didn't want the limelight. John wasn't the center stage. John was the hype man. John was the, you know, the, the guy who gets the crowd going for the main event. And so too should Christ's church always be. Point people to the Savior. We don't draw attention to ourselves. We draw all attention to Him. 
It is fitting now as we respond to God's Word to come to the communion table. And on the communion table, you have a, a, a little piece of bread, a cracker, and little cups of juice. This is a meal that was given to us by the Lord Himself to teach us about Him. They're symbols. Just as baptism symbolizes salvation, so too the communion table symbolizes the body of the eternal Son that was broken and bled out and shed for us. Come to the table today. Come and believe in Him today. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. For in Him, His cup never runs dry. As we enjoy the symbol of communion today, we'll join our hearts and sing to God as we do it. And next week we will return, and I'll pick up where we left off in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll continue the text to set the stage for baptisms next Sunday. And we're going to see one get into the waters of baptism next week in our study, and it is none other than Jesus himself. He enters into our dirty waters to take our filth and shame upon himself and to carry it to the cross of Calvary, where he dies in our place. What a precious Savior. Isn't he good? Let's sing to him. Let's celebrate him. Father, we thank you for sending your son for us. And that while we were yet sinners, he would die for us. And had it not been for the force of your spirit, we would still be in war and rebellion against you. It's humbling to think that you had to seize us by force that we would not have come to you on our own to negotiate peace. And the terms of any negotiation we would have made would have been an insult to you. But you saw fit to not only negotiate and broker peace, but to accomplish it yourself, O Father, in your Son, who bore the wrath for us, who's, who, who took the winnowing fork upon himself on the cross of Calvary and took fire on himself. He was, he was condemned for us that we might be made whole and have life in you. Ten out of ten people die, but for your church, death has no victory, death has no sting. Our king is coming, and he will raise the dead and renew all things. And we are so happy to be on this side and have peace with him. Bless us as we sing and partake in the sacred table of communion. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.